Good morning. Great to see you guys this morning, and I think I say every Sunday, just a blessing and honor to be able to worship the Lord with you and open God's Word together. So we are uh, parked from 1 Peter. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for our special message for Palm Sunday. If you uh, have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19. Of course, today is Palm Sunday. It's the first day of what's often called Holy Week or Passion Week. It's a day that we get to celebrate, and I would add also contemplate, you know, to take time to think through uh, the significance of this event that all four gospel writers record for us as we read it. And, and really the aim of our message this morning is to answer the question, like, why is this important for us today? Why, why are we spending time? Why are we taking uh, you know, a side ramp off of 1 Peter and looking at these accounts on this particular day. Uh, it's the first Sunday of the month. We're also going to have a time of communion together as we close our service and worship. But again, we're in Luke chapter 19. If you need to borrow a Bible, we'd love to loan you one. You just have to raise your hand real high. And uh, the guys will be happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow with us. And let me get there myself. Luke chapter 19. We're looking at verses 28 through 44. So a number of verses that cover this account. And what I'd like to invite you to do, most of you guys know, is just our, our custom here and wanting to honor God and His Word. I'm going to ask you to stand for a little bit. We won't read all of those verses. Uh, I'm going to read just the verse 31 and kind of give us a running start into this portion that the good Dr. Luke of course, inspired by God's Spirit, pens and records for us so that we might read and learn and grow in our faith of Jesus. He says, when he had said this, verse 28 of Luke 19, that's speaking of Jesus. So when Jesus said these things, then Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, and he gives them very specific instructions. He says, verse 30, Go into the village opposite you, and then you will enter there and find a colt tied on which nobody has ever sat. It's unbroken. We you to loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Why are you loosening the colt? Then you can say to that person, because the Lord has need of it. All right, we're going to pause there. Chris prayed for us. I appreciate that prayer. Why don't you take a moment, introduce yourself to somebody new, or at least say hello to somebody maybe you already know, and then you can have a seat. All right, I, I have to have a disclaimer on my opening, so I'm going to preface my comments with saying this. Uh, I am absolutely pro-math. I am absolutely pro-geometry and studying of subjects. All right, and you're like, why is he saying that? Here, here's why. Anybody remember sitting in school, you're sitting in class, and you ask yourself, why in the world do I need to know this? I think it's a question that perhaps many, if not all of us, have asked at some point in time as we're learning certain subjects. Why, why do I need to learn this? Like, how, how is this going to benefit me in my life later? For me, that's the question I asked in geometry and in a lot of my math classes, uh, learning angles for me helped me in playing pool. Um, 
But I have to be honest, the Pythagorean, Pythagorean I can't even say it, the <laughs> Pythagorean theorem uh, hasn't been something that I've used quite a bit. You know, like it's not like anything that I've needed. Now, granted, I, I know that there are certain jobs and industries, you are engineers, uh, your construction, your computer people, your pilots, your... Um, you know, designer carpenters. I mean, there's a whole, I, I know there's a whole industry and they use higher math and they use it often and regularly. And we're grateful, grateful for them because we have strong buildings and secure bridges. I, I feel confident I can get on an airplane. I'm grateful for Candy Crush, right? Like, like all of those arenas that math finds itself, thank you. Uh, but for me, uh, knowing the hypotenuse of a triangle really hasn't changed my life like Miss Cuniff uh, in Kadena High School seemed to believe. So I say all that to say this. I think sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we can have a, uh, a similar brand of skepticism. Uh, we, we can come to the scripture with the same type of questions of like, okay, but why do I really need to know this? Or, or maybe we'll just be real direct and ask the question, who cares as we read these various things? So today, uh, I thought I, I'd like to make an attempt to connect what we see, what we study, what we read here in these events that happened some 2,000 years ago and ask the question and answer the question, who cares? What does it mean for us today? What's the significance of Palm Sunday, also called the triumphal entry? And so that's just the title of our message, what the triumphal entry teaches us today. So we're going to make our way as we normally do. I'm going to just take each verse and section, but I'm going to save some of our applications, some of our observations towards the end. So it's a little different than we normally do. All right, I draw your attention back to the account that Luke records for us. As I mentioned, all four gospel writers give us an account of this very important event. And Luke says, when Jesus, when he said this, when Jesus said this, he then goes on ahead and he goes up to Jerusalem. Now we've been in first Peter, so we're jumping right in the middle of this account that Luke is recording for us. So let me just give you a little bit of background. Prior to this, Jesus and the disciples are in another town called Jericho. And in Jericho, he has some pretty key events. He, he ends up running into this guy who's, you know, two guys who are blind. He heals one. Uh, he runs into a tax collector. He's a short little guy. He climbs a tree. They're, uh, you know, life-changing encounter with uh, that man by the name of Zacchaeus. And then he also takes time to teach the people who uh, are around because they have the wrong idea about the kingdom of God, about the nature of the kingdom of God, about the coming of the kingdom of God and the accountability, the, the expectation that God has. And so Jesus teaches uh, various parables to stress the importance about the nature of the kingdom of God. That's another lesson. That's another day. But it gives us the background. So when he has said those things, when he was done teaching the parables, he continues to move on along with the disciples, and they're making their way to Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why. We, we know, uh, at least in this section, uh, we know that he's going there because he's going for the Passover. 
Uh, it's a very important feast. Uh, it's an important feast for the Jewish nation. I'll explain in a little bit, but that's the reason he's going. So as they get close in verse 29 and on, we read that they come to these towns near the Mount of Olives, Bethany and Bethphage. Now, the way that the New King James reads, it says the mountain called Olivet. Uh, there are mountains in Israel, but the Mount of Olives isn't really a giant mountain. So think, think of mountains like in Okinawa, right? Like they're, they're big hills. Um, and so the Mount of Olives is like that. Uh, and by the way, we're still planning to go uh, June of 2024, so a year and some change. We're going to head to Israel. And if you've been watching the news, please be in prayer for Israel. There's a lot of uh, interesting things that are happening right now. But Lord willing, uh, if Christ doesn't come back before that, then we'll go to Israel and we'll look to have a great time. And one of the things that we will do is we will go to the Mount of Olives, and, and you'll see, oh, that's not that bad. And we'll walk down actually the same pathway. Well, I shouldn't say the same pathway. We will walk down the Mount of Olives, uh, similar to what Jesus is doing here. So as he gets close to the Mount of Olives, into these towns, we read that he sends two of his disciples. Luke doesn't name them for us. And you note with me in verse 30 and 31, he gives them very straightforward, very simple, but yet very specific instructions. Go to the other town. When you get there, you're going to find this cult. Now, again, the other gospels tell us there's a mama donkey and a baby donkey. There's actually two Luke just focuses on the one that Jesus rode. Go get that colt. You're going to untie him. You're going to bring him back to me. If anyone gives you beef, if anyone sweats you, if anyone gets in your grill, you just say, hey, the Lord needs it. And that's going to be good enough. So we read in verse 32 that those who were sent went their way. They found it exactly like Jesus said. No surprise there. And sure enough, I don't know why Luke records this for us. The owner of the donkey does find out, like, you know, thinks these guys are donkey jacking them. Hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you loosening it? And then they give them the secret passcode that Jesus said, just say this and all's going to be well. And sure enough, everything was good. Right? Mission briefing accomplished. They carry out their assignment. Operation grab donkey and go. Mission accomplished. Simple enough. And then what happens? Well, they bring this donkey, this colt, back to Jesus, verse 35. And we read, interestingly, they throw their own clothes, their outer cloak, their outer jacket, on the colt. It's like a makeshift, impromptu saddle. Jesus gets on this colt. And then the implication is he begins to ride down the Mount of Olives. And it says, then as many went, or excuse me, as he went, many spread their own clothes. So they take the cue from the disciples. They're going to spread their clothes on the road. I've always thought it interesting that in Luke's gospel, there's no palms on his Palm Sunday account. Where the other gospels record that they, people would grab the palm trees and palm fronds and they're waving them around. Um, it's the, it's the same scene. It's spontaneous praise. It's honoring of the Lord. And yet for Luke's, 
He, he notes that it's the guys, you know, it's the disciples, it's the followers. They're, they're taking off their outer tunic and, and, and honoring Jesus that way. If we only had Luke's gospel, we wouldn't call it Palm Sunday, right? We'd call it Apparel Sunday, right? Clothes Sunday. First, the disciples use their clothes. The people, in a sense, maybe get a, uh, you know, follow their lead, and then they throw their clothes on the road like this just makeshift, improvised red carpet to honor Jesus who's coming down the Mount of Olives riding on the back of a donkey. And essentially what we're, we see is it's the people who are honoring Christ, who are praising him, um, worshiping him with whatever they had on their person. So it's their clothes, it's their voices, it's palm trees, uh, and it's a great reminder for us. You know, the Lord, the Lord doesn't need extravagant things from us to worship him. The Lord doesn't need those things for us to honor him and glorify him. In fact, the Bible will even say God's more interested in our heart, right? The posture of our heart. If we're sincere, uh, if we're genuine, it can be simple, but he's pleased with sincerity. And that's that's what we should bring to the Lord. Well, what else do we read that Luke records for us? It says, now as he's getting near the bottom, he's, he's coming to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples. Again, the other gospel accounts will tell us there's a whole giant crowd there. And they begin to break out in this uh, spontaneous praise and song. They're, they're, it's loud. And it says they're rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And what are they singing? This flash mob. What's their chorus line? At least what Luke records. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. All right. This brings us to our first point. Why is Palm Sunday important? Why are we taking time to study this? What's the significance? So what? Let me just give you an, arch, an overarching point. Palm Sunday is God's fulfillment of a prophetic promise. God made a promise to his people, to the nations, that he was going to bring them a deliverer, a Messiah, a king. That promise is fulfilled in many different ways of various different prophecies, and this is a big one. As I mentioned, all four gospel writers record the events of this Palm Sunday event, this triumphal entry. And all four of the gospel writers tie us back to the fact that it fulfilled some type of messianic prophecy, every aspect of it, not just um, him coming down, but the fact that he picked a donkey. For example, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says that it was a fulfillment of the prophecy Matthew 21, verse 4. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal or the, the baby of a donkey. That's exactly what Jesus did. In Mark chapter 11, Mark records that the crowd was singing very similar. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. And so when you mention Father David and the kingdom of David, that's messianic terminology. That's messianic lingo. 
It ties Jesus to the line of David. And from the line of David, God had promised a king. And so blessed is the kingdom of our father David. who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, the other gospel writers will tell us that's another chorus line. They sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Notice uh, Luke doesn't give us that particular verse in chorus line. You get to the gospel of John. In John chapter 12, he, he summarizes, he condenses the whole scene, but he basically quotes all of it. And then he just adds this, that as it was written, all of these things were to be fulfilled. In fact, he even adds the commentary, the disciples weren't fully tracking. They, they didn't have an aha moment at that time. They were, they were in there, they were part of it, but it wasn't until later they're like, oh man, now we get it. The light bulb came on. And so why do we study this? Why are we taking time to read this and, and explain these things? It reminds us that God has made a promise and he fulfilled his promise, this fulfillment of prophecy of the Messiah to come. Why is that important for us? Well, it gives us the nature of God. If God is faithful to make promises to a nation, to his people, and he keeps them and he keeps them perfectly, guess what? God will keep his promise to you perfectly. God will keep his promise to you always. And it's not contingent upon your faithfulness. In fact, the Bible even says quite the opposite. In 2 Timothy 2.13, even if you're faithless, even if you blow it, even if you fumble and stumble and make mistakes, which we do, right? Guess what? God still is faithful. God still loves you. God will still complete the good work he began in you. The Bible says he won't deny himself. When we come back to Peter in a couple weeks, Peter's going to remind us that the Promises of God are precious. They are yes and they are amen. His promise will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. His promise that all things, all things, not some things, not most things, not 99.5% of things, all things will work together for good. It's hard for us to see sometimes the beginning of that, in the midst of that. And yet that is the promise of the Lord. And guess what? God is faithful. In fact, what God gives us as a deposit, as he's working out these things, is uh, we, we, it's a great exchange. God says, give me your anxiety, give me your worry, cast those things to me, and I will give you, as you pray, a peace that surpasses understanding. It'll guard your heart, it'll guard your mind. You don't have to hit the panic button. Maybe you're in that place today. See, Palm Sunday, I pray, reminds you, encourages you that God's in control. He's on the throne. He's not pacing the halls of heaven, biting his nails, wondering what's going to happen to you. He's faithful. He cares for you and he loves you. In fact, he invites us to cast our cares to him because of that. Even when we don't understand in the moment even when we can't make sense of it. The Lord is, is faithful, and he remains faithful. And guess what? Even if you made a mistake, even if you wish, as I sometimes do, like I could go back and change my course, change my decision. The Lord remains constant, and the Lord remains true. 
Here's a beautiful promise that God gives us in Lamentations, an Old Testament beautiful promise. In chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. My version reads, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, right? Great is God's faithfulness. Church family, Palm Sunday reminds us of this beautiful, powerful truth that God fulfilled a prophetic promise that he instituted from the beginning of time, revealed through the prophets, fulfilled by Christ, and God still keeps his promises to a nation and to you. And he knows exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it and for the purposes that he wants to accomplish. And so be encouraged in that. The second thing that this reminds us of is that God's timing is always perfect. I'll talk a little bit about how this prophecy, more than those who study such things, 300 messianic prophecies of Christ's first coming. In fact, Daniel chapter 9 arguably predicted and prophesied this very event, this particular day, on the money. And so his timing is perfect, and it's always perfect. And God's track record of faithfulness and fulfilling prophecy after prophecy and promise after promise, you know, gives us then the confidence that we can trust the Lord. Even in his timetable. It's true of history and church family. It is true of our story and your story too. And and maybe we've already discovered this. God doesn't always work on our timetable. Anyone discover that? (laughs) His timing is perfect, but ours is often flawed. And if you're like me, it's flawed because, well, I'm selfish. That's the reality. I like things now, right? Like, Like even my microwave sometimes is too slow. Like, come on. We, we live in a culture that caters to our uh, preference of quickness, doesn't it? I mean, anybody remember that when you would take pictures, you have to wait like days in order to them get back? Anybody remember that? Some of us old people, right? Our kids now, they take a picture like the Misi, right? <laughs> or how about dial-up internet? Anybody remember dial-up internet? Our kids have no idea the suffering that we experience, right? We like quick. We like now. And we bring that same mentality when it comes to our spirituality, right? We bring that same expectation. Lord, I want it now, today. Yet God doesn't operate that way. In fact, he tells us very plainly in Isaiah 55. He says, "Uh, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, guess what? My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The other beautiful part of that, though, is God says, but my thoughts towards you are always good. To give you a future and a hope. And so, yes, it may not look like the way that we would do it. It may not be the same family plan that we thought on the front side. It may not be the same career path that you have chosen. It may not be the duty station that was on your dream list. 
not your timing, not your way, and yet God is still good through it all. But if you're like me, what I, the mistakes I often make is I, I run ahead of God. And I can tell you by experience, and I can tell you from Scripture, uh, it's often we make a mess of the situation. We create more trouble than it's worth when we run ahead of the Lord. And so it's this day that gives us a great reminder that God is always on time. He's never late. He's never early. And there's a great blessing, in fact, for us just waiting while God is at work, working behind the scenes, putting things into motion. Actually, it's, it's another verse from Isaiah. Earlier, Isaiah 40. For those who wait upon the Lord, renew their strength, be like we'll mount up like on eagle's wings, the idea that we can soar, we're going to, Isaiah says, we'll run, we won't grow weary, we'll walk, we won't faint. The energy, vitality, all from just waiting on the Lord. Maybe that's a word for you this morning. Don't run ahead of God. Just wait on the Lord. Let God do what he wants to do. So Jesus makes his way down the Mount of Olives. He comes into Jerusalem, and we read this this crowd that's with him, verse 37, begins to rejoice, begins to praise God. They're, They're loud, they're bold. And then Luke tells us they're singing a portion from Psalm 118, verse 26. And they all know the chorus line. They're all familiar with this song. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're familiar with that song because it's a prophetic passage. In fact, it's one that they would already be reciting and singing along with the Passover celebration. That's why they're all there, by the way. And interestingly enough, it ties us back to our study in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we were looking at Peter says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone whom the people rejected. That's also Psalm 118. It's just a couple of verses before this particular uh, verse. It's messianic. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The people rejected him. And yet God is faithful Regardless of the rejection, God's still going to have his plan and his purposes. And there's another perspective that we can bless the Lord and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's important to note that this event of Palm Sunday isn't just happening on some random day. It's happening the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we, you know, we call Passover. And that's why then, in terms of a background, we have an increase of population in the city. It was one of three feasts and festivals that if you and I were devout Jews, for us as the guys, we we were required to go. You couldn't ditch this. There's no going fishing. There's no ditching to watch the final four. You got to go. And so the city would swell. It would pack with people. We're going to have a small preview of this come August, the end of August. Because at the end of August, there's going to be the FIBA tournament. You guys know what that is? It's like the World Cup for basketball. If you didn't know, it's coming to Okinawa, in the Okinawa Arena, right near where the cells live. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be crazy. 
I highly encourage you to be like avoid gate five, that area. <laughs> or if you want to experience what it was like during Passover, go. <laughs> go have fun in the madness. But that's what it was like. It was a, a major uh, holiday. The family gathered. It was kind of like, you know, Christmas or, uh, you know, even like New Year's, especially for the Okinawan and Japanese families. All they, you know, they gathered together. It required a, a sacrifice. The sacrifice had to happen at the temple. And therefore, people had to go to the temple, which was in Jerusalem. Hence why the city gets packed. Now. That's where the multitude's coming from. Why are they singing this chorus? Well, it was already part of their normal celebration. It was already part of the, the, the songs they would sing during Passover. Included in that or additional to that, which Luke doesn't tell us again, is they're also crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew and Aramaic. It just simply means save now. And so all of that built into this time of celebration to remember a time when God delivered their ancestors, great, great, great grandma and grandpa from Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt, in bondage in Egypt. And God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And he led the people out into the promised land, the very place that they're living now. And so... It's very nationalistic. They're remembering a time when God delivered them from the tyranny uh, of a pagan nation. And now they're living in their own land under the tyranny of another pagan force and nation. The Romans dominate their area. And there were some, many, who hoped and believed and wanted Jesus to be a military king, to raise up a rebel army and to fight against Rome and kick them out and deliver them from the political, the socioeconomic, the spiritual oppression that they are experiencing. I, I, don't, I don't think it's not too unlike some of the uh, restlessness and the unease that we're sensing in the world today. Instability of currency. Moral failure of world leaders. The politicizing of legal systems. I mean, just, I feel like we're just, the world's on edge. And here comes here comes Jesus, who rumor already and story already, man, this guy's incredible. He can walk on water. He can, he can feed thousands with just a little. Everyone showed up. They all got a fish taco. It's amazing. Right? And there's extra. Bentos for, for the disciples. He raised a guy from the dead. It wasn't his first time. And so all of this, this, this frenetic energy surrounding this feast, frustration at the oppression, 
tired of the tyranny. And here comes Jesus, charismatic, kind, capable. That's why they're singing out. Along with him. That's why it's catered to him, at him, around him. They're calling him the king. And so this scene of Jesus coming down, and for some who knew their Bibles, who knew the scripture, it, it would be a familiar scene. For the Romans, it's laughable. There's no king riding a donkey. Right? Their triumphal entry was pomp and circumstance. Right? They're, they're coming in with a huge parade. They're on mighty war horses. They're not riding a little donkey. And yet the prophecy says the king is that way. In fact, it's not the first time in the history of Israel that a leader rides on a donkey. The judges did. In fact, in 2 Kings 9, there's a king by the name of Jehu is on a donkey riding down the Mount of Olives. Symbolic of, of peace, of bringing civilly, civil rest. What's the word I'm looking for? Civility, thank you. Civility, my senileness, all right. But we, we understand that what they didn't, right? Je Jesus wasn't coming to be their conquering king. He wasn't coming to lead a political and military coup. He's coming to be the deliverer of their hearts. King of their hearts, king of peace, to deliver them and deliver us out of the bondage of sin, of our stupidity, of us being enslaved to our flesh. That's why Christ was coming. Well, Jesus is coming back again, and we'll get there in a little bit. And he's going to come back as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to come back on a mighty horse. But for this particular time, he comes to deliver them from themselves. And that's true of all of us, you guys. The Bible says we, we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory and the standard of God. None, none of us measure up. And Christ came to live and to die and rescue you and me from the penalty of our sin. From death and damnation. From eternal separation from God forever. Christ stands in the gap for you. And when I and you confess our sins, we recognize that Christ came for us and we turn from our sins, we repent from our sins, and we confess the Lord and receive the Lord, the Bible says we'll be saved. As simple as that. Now, we talked before, we still fight against our sin nature. We're delivered out of the penalty, but we still have the sin nature in us. I mean, in fact, just yesterday, I was fighting my sin nature. It was April Fool's Day. I had all kinds of ideas. I, had, I, I wanted to put food coloring in my wife's shampoo. I thought, that would be so hilarious. <laughs> then I thought, I can do it in Ben's shampoo too, and they're going to show up with like green hair. Ha ha, that would be so funny. And my kid had uh, his pictures for his team. I thought, I'd immortalize him. Uh, I thought, no, together they would kill me and beat me to death if I... Uh, <laughs> But man, I, I struggled wanting to do that. My sin nature. 
Christ came as king, the king of peace of our hearts and to deliver us from our sin. And so what does this day teach us? Well, it's that. He, God made a promise of the Messiah and Jesus then comes and fulfills that promise and he presents himself as king. And Jesus, this day teaches us that Jesus is our king. Now that has a lot of implication. If you name the name of Christ, if you say Jesus is your Lord, it means a lot of things. I'll just give you two. Jesus is our king means then he gets to direct our path. Jesus models this for us. In fact, not too long from this scene where he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it's a challenging question for us because if you name the name of Christ today, can you and I say we live in constant yield of what God wants to do in our life? Or are we brokering deals? Are we... Are we are we complete in our obedience or are we compromised? Or is it conditional? And dare I say that if I and you claim and confess that Christ is king, then it should mean that we surrender our will to the Lord's. You know, when we read this account back in verse 32, it says, those who went that way, they found it just as he said. And we read that they did exactly what they were told. So we have a model of obedience even in the account for us. And what I like about it is that the disciples themselves didn't know the whole picture. Jesus didn't lay all of it out. He just says, here's what I want you to do. Here's the first step. Go here, get this, grab that, come back, and, and we're good for now. And we talked about this before in 1 Peter. Right? You know, again, if you're like me, sometimes I want to know every, I want to know all the play. What's the rest of the itinerary, God? And the Lord's looking for us, just be obedient to what he's given you today. What he's placed before you now. And sometimes we get so worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. What about next year? What about this thing? And the Lord's like, hey, I got you. Just focus right now what I've given you today. The disciples knew to get the cult. And I would add this, their obedience was vital and critical for the rest of the story. The rest of what happened. And they get to play a part in this amazing historical event. And we never know just the part that we're obedient to, how God will use that in the storyline of history. Yours and the person or your family or whoever God leads you to. And so it's a good reminder for us. If Jesus is our king, then we, we need to yield to him. Another reminder is if Jesus is our king, then he deserves all of the praise and glory and honor and attention and affection. Again, it's modeled for us in this passage. First note with me that the crowds, Luke says, they praised God and honored him with a loud voice. It says, for all the things they saw, all the things that he did. And, and there's a part of that that's good, but I would say it's incomplete. We certainly praise God and honor God for all the things he has done. There's that great song we sing, you know, for what he's done. But it's, that's where we begin. I mean, true worship really is we praise God not just for what he's done, but for who he is. 
I would even say the higher level is we praise God for what he's going to do. Not just thank him on the backside. By faith, we can say, Lord, thank you for what you're going to do. I don't know what it's going to look like, Lord. I don't know where you're taking me in this course, God. I don't know how my obedience today will play out tomorrow for what it means for my marriage and my family, my career, or what you have for me. But God, thank you. He deserves our praise. Last week, we talked about Peter mentions this, you know, worthy of our praise. And the writer of Hebrews says that we're to continually bring a sacrifice of praise of our mouth with our lips. In Hebrews 13. We don't want to neglect good. We share with what we have for such sacrifices. We talked about, is it really a sacrifice if it doesn't cost us anything? And sacrifice of praise. That it's pleasing to the Lord. That's the way that we please God. So not just something that we do in a sense. It's, it's our lifestyle. Or I would, I would say not something we just do on a Sunday morning, but it's what we do every day. In fact, it's really interesting to me. I don't know if you ever thought about this. That we are created for worship. And certainly worship is defined more than just singing songs, right? It's, it's defined by we worship God when we study his word. We worship God when we, we're kind to people. We're, we worship God when we, we serve the Lord and we give to the Lord. It, all of it's worship. But the, but, but the particular act of singing a song, that that is prescribed for us. And I, and I find that interesting. In a couple of weeks, uh, some of you guys know my family is going to be taking off for a little bit. And um, my daughter's graduating college. Um, we're going to go visit some family in the East Coast. And, and so some of my itinerary is dictated by who I'm going to go see, but also what I'm going to go eat. Right? Like, <laughs> like, that's my activity. Like, what are you excited about? Like, my family, my friends, food. Like, that, you know. And imagine, like me, some of you, when you're, when you're planning a vacation, you're planning an activity, it's like, oh, what, what are the things we get to do when we get there? We're going to go on a hike, go to this particular park, you know, these lists of things. What's on the agenda when we get to heaven? What are the activities we get to do? Maybe cloud bouncing, that'd be kind of fun, right? <laughs> Hop from cloud to cloud. I don't, I don't know. Right? Get to ride bikes down the street of gold. I, I, maybe. I don't know. That'd be kind of cool, right? Be doing wheelies with Josh down the, you know, down the main street of heaven. Check us out. You know. I, I don't know. Making a little bit of fun. But you know what I know is on the list? 100% on the list? Worship. Worship. Which... It, it, it shocks me. We're going to be part of heaven's choir. You don't want me part of earth's choir. <laughs> but we're going to be part of heaven's choir. It is going to be the one activity that all of us participate in. That we're going to worship the Lord. And there's these beautiful, powerful scenes of heaven, especially in the book of Revelation, where John looks upon the scene of heaven and he sees a multitude there. A multitude of multitudes. 
and they're gathered around the throne. It's the angels. It's the, uh, these interesting created creatures. It, it's the elders. It's us. It's the church. And, and we're, we're, we're singing. And the chorus that we sing is holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. And guess what? We'll never get tired of the lyrics. It won't be like one of those songs you're like, I'm done, get that out of my head, put something else. For eternity, we will proclaim and praise and sing, and we will never tire of it. We will never tire of singing it. We'll never tire of praising our Lord. And we get to do that as a sneak preview in this side of heaven. And so if Jesus is our king and he is, then our obedience to him will look like that we yield ourselves to him and, and he deserves all of our praise and glory. We don't touch it. We don't become prideful. So verse 39, some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that even if the crowd keeps quiet, the stones will immediately cry out. I find it very interesting that the Pharisees are there. Who invited them to the parade? Because they don't like Jesus, right? I mean, this is towards the end of his, of his ministry. And I mean, he's, it's the week leading up to his crucifixion. Why are they there? Every turn, they're trying to discredit him and his message, his ministry. And so they're there. And we often see them, right? They criticize. They're critical. And they even tell him, hey, why don't you tell your disciples in this crowd to put a sock in it. Yakumashi, urusai. They're making all this noise. As an aside, it's usually the legalistic and the religious that despise spontaneous, sincere praise. That's their attitude. But I love how the Lord responds. He says, okay, but even if everyone goes quiet, you know my old standard joke? You guys ready for it? I got my own rock band. You like that? First service liked it better, you guys. I don't. <laughs> this is the first time we see Jesus welcoming public praise and acknowledgement of who he is. It's really fascinating. Because there's many times before, even at the beginning of his ministry, Right at the start, when there was a problem in Cana, they ran out of wine. His mom says, hey, this is your chance. You can show them what you can do. And Jesus says, mom, my time hasn't come yet. There's later on when even his own brothers are like, hey, if you really want everyone to believe who you are, then you need to put this, take this show on the road. Post on Instagram. Jesus says, my time hasn't come. And so many times before, trying to take him by force, trying to, I mean, even demonic spirits acknowledging who he is, and he would sidestep that and he would silence them. And over and over again, he says, my time hasn't come, my hour not yet, until this time. Back when he gets to the garden, he can say, my hour has come. This time it's different. Jesus welcomed it. Jesus permitted it. Uh, Jesus planned it. Right? He set it all into motion because his timing is perfect. 
He's on this divine timeline. He's on God the Father's, you know, day planner. And it's ordered and it's ordained to the exact day according to Daniel 9.25. It's amazing. And I pray you're encouraged by that. But Luke focuses on this interesting aspect of that where, yes, it's amazing, but there's an anomaly. There's an enigma happening. And we read it in verse 41. As he drew near, he sees the city and he cries. What a contrast of emotion. There's a parade. There's a matsuri. It's happy. It's exciting. There's a lot of energy. And yet there's rejoicing and there's Jesus weeping. Why? Why why the contrast? Well, Jesus tells us. He, He gives us insight. When he sees the city, he says, if you've known, and notice how specific he is, even you, especially in this, your, your day, the things that make for your peace, this is all for them. He says, but they're hidden from your eyes. And then there's a sad, terrible consequence for their ignorance and their inaction. For days are going to come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment around you. So Jesus himself gives a prophecy, right? 70 AD, the Roman general, they're finally done with the revolt in, in, in Jerusalem. He's going to come in and they're going to destroy everything. That's why there's no temple there today, by the way. They're going to surround you, close you in on every side. They're going to level you, your kids, your family. They're not going to leave one stone upon another. Why? Because they did not know the time of their visitation. There was an expectation that Jesus himself had. And so here's what the triumphal entry reminds us, teaches us. God keeps his promises. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is our king. So he has every right to tell us what to do and what not to do. And number three, it tells us and reminds us that Christ is coming back. His first coming is a foreshadow of his second coming. And along with that, there is an expectation for you and for me to be ready to know this. So many verses that talk about let's not be ignorant, let's be ready, let's be alert, let's not be asleep, let's be sober, let's be watchful. All of these encouragements and exhortations that we have no excuse and to know it and then to act upon it. Now, I realize there's debate and discussion, and, and there's a place for that in terms of our eschatology, the study of end times. In fact, when we, we come back to Peter, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, where Peter's going to say, oh, there's scoffers, and everybody says, oh, where's the promise of his coming? It's always been the same. And Peter will say, hey, God, God is not slack concerning his promises. It's going to happen, but God doesn't want anybody to perish. That's why God's delaying, because he loves you, doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But regardless of your eschatology, and usually it's just about when. I don't think anyone really debates Christ is coming back. Jesus himself said so. I'm leaving and I'm coming back. And so the default application, regardless of your eschatological line, timeline, is this. 
be ready. To be ready. And what does that look like for us? It is confess our sins to the Lord. Don't be involved in stupid things that have no impact for eternity. Get rid of that. Lay it down. Gang, there is a great spiritual deception right now. And we cannot be asleep. We, we, we need to open our eyes to what's going on. We don't want to be ignorant to the things that are happening around us. And we certainly don't want to be inactive. Because what we learn from this verse is there's a great expense to us and our family and our loved ones if we operate in ignorance and if we operate in inaction to today, Palm Sunday. Why is it important? Why is it significant? What do we, what do we learn? It reminds us that this is the day that the Lord had made and Christ presents himself as the prophesied king. This day, perfectly fulfilled. And so because of that, it reminds us that God keeps his promises to you and to me as well. That Jesus is our king, so he deserves our obedience and he deserves our praise and our adoration. And it does remind us, listen, Christ is coming back. In fact, even when we have this time of communion, and we'll transition now into this, Passover, as I mentioned, was this whole feast of remembrance, important for the Jewish nation. Why was it called Passover? Because what God said was, I'm going to bring judgment on the land. And the way that you're going to be saved from judgment is you have to go get this innocent lamb and you're going to keep it in your house for a couple of days. And at twilight, you're going to sacrifice it. You confess your sins. You sacrifice this lamb. You're going to take its blood and you're going to put it on your doorpost. And supernaturally, this angel of judgment is going to come through the land. But if you have your, the blood of the lamb on your door, you'll be saved. The angel of death will pass over your house. And Paul writing to the Corinthians says, Christ is our Passover lamb. Powerful, beautiful picture of our salvation. The blood of, of the Lamb of God applied, if you will, to our hearts. We are freed and saved from judgment. It's a poignant, picturesque, very personal, prophetic, you know, ceremony. And Christ then at the upper room has it with the disciples and he amplifies all meaning of it. And he says, this bread is my body broken for you. And this cup is my blood given and shed for you, for your sins. And, and Paul reminds us as Jesus did there in the upper room where he partook of the bread and the cup, making a very powerful proclamation of identity of our salvation but inherent in that, just like the very first time the Passover meal happened, there was a deposit of a coming king. It's salvation is coming. And likewise, when we partake of the cup, Jesus says, 
we do so. Paul says we do so. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. These beautiful parallels. Oh, there's the bell. We have no third service. I appreciate you guys' grace. All right, we're going to do it like they did in the Old Testament. We'll do it biblically. Although we won't stand. They ate it standing. We'll, we'll do it quickly, though. All right? Have the guys come, the worship team come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your goodness, your grace, your word, your love. The reminder that you keep your promises. Lord, even when we, we can't see and we don't understand, even when we're hurt and we're frustrated, even, Lord, when there's political and civil unrest around us, God, you have a plan. You are in control. In the midst of that, Lord, in the midst of all of it, it's us and it's you. And you love us and you care for us and you want a relationship with us. And we're reminded then in this very simple, simple way as we eat this little cracker and we drink from this little cup and yet all that that means, the fullness of what that represents for us, God. I pray it would not get lost and we would just take a, a couple minutes as we worship you in song and we worship you in communion. Lord, stir our hearts for these truths that we've studied. In Jesus' name, amen.